Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. It has happened again. Early Sunday morning, dozens of people were gunned down inside a popular gay nightclub in Orlando, Florida. Authorities say 50 people, including the gunmen, are dead, making it the worst mass shooting in U.S. history. Multiple media outlets are reporting one of the victims is from Connecticut. According to her Facebook page, 37-year-old Kimberly Morris, also known as KJ, was from Torrington. Across the country, vigils were held, including in Hartford on Sunday. What happened in, in Orlando, Florida today, or earlier this morning, is personal. Today, we reflect on the gun violence that's becoming far too common. We'll have an update from reporters on the ground in Florida. We'll check in with U.S. Senator Chris Murphy, who's been an outspoken advocate for congressional action to curb gun violence. And we want to hear from you. How did you react when you heard the news? What do you think needs to happen to end gun violence in our country? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Again, 860-275-7266. You can share your comments on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. WMPR's Colin McEnroe joins me in studio. Hi, Colin. Good morning, Lucy. So um, a lot of times our listeners wonder, you know, how do you plan shows? And we actually had a show planned for today that literally we threw out the window uh, yesterday afternoon because of what happened in Orlando. Um, And I think it's important that you're here today, Colin, because you were here on the air um, after Sandy Hook. And it's four years later, another mass shooting. What's different about this tragedy? I think what's different, obviously, there's some terrible similarities, including the use of a member of the AR-14 family of weapons, as they are some sometimes bitterly, ironically called, uh, in a very small space. You can kill a lot of people who can't get away from you with one of these weapons. Uh, The difference probably is context. Um, Newtown was a story almost without context. Uh, Adam Lanza was pretty much the sum uh, of his psychological and neurological impairments. He wasn't a person with an ideology. Uh, Nobody will ever know, I think, why he picked children. And that his victims were too young, really, to have uh, ideology. They certainly didn't have the kind of identities we're talking about in Orlando. They were never given a chance to grow up and and have those identities. So, you know, the difference here, obviously, is we're talking about a few things that are specific to adult identity. Uh, Omar Mateen has two aspects that that have risen to the fore. One of them is he's was a domestically violent abuser. Uh, that may turn out to be a major factor in this story. Uh, obviously, also, the, there's the Islamic component. The degree to which his Islamic faith had anything to do with this is also something we're going to have a five- or six-month debate about. And then on the other side of it, uh, the victims had an identity. They were at uh, a nightclub for the LGBT community. Uh, that's obviously a huge looming aspect of that. So, yeah, I think that's the difference. There was a way in which Newtown was almost kind of abstract. You had this guy who had no real reasons that you could ever figure out attacking a bunch of people who were so young as to not really you know, have anything that might excite somebody's passions. We're going to hear more about the victims in Orlando. Catherine Welch now joins us by phone. She's news director at WMFE in Orlando. She used to be the news director at Rhode Island Public Radio. That's how we know Catherine. Catherine, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Um, First off, our condolences to the Orlando community. Uh, How have residents been reacting? We know this, this is still very new. 
You know, it, it almost immediately. Um, the minute there was a call for blood, there was a line a mile long at the blood bank. People waited in line for up to six, seven hours. And even as far, you know, 40 miles away in Daytona Beach, there just happened to be a blood drive, and people waited for hours there. Then all of a sudden we got word of vigils. There were a number of vigils last night throughout the city, including one of the more iconic gay bars known as the Parliament House. Um, also, there's an iconic park right in the middle of downtown Orlando. It's called Lake Eola, and a vigil was planned there. The city begged people not to come. They were worried about their safety, and um, scores of them still came to light candles and remember the victims. Online, there's a GoFundMe page that has raised about $1.3 million. Also, Orlando has one of those huge Ferris wheels, like in London. It's called uh, the Orlando Eye. And last night, um, it was lit up in rainbow colors, um, commemorating the gay community and the lives lost at the nightclub, The Pulse. Um, this morning, we have a prominent new performing arts center right in the middle of downtown Orlando. It has offered its lawn uh, for people to leave objects and candles and flowers in remembrance of the victims of the deadly shooting. And we're hearing this morning at that press conference just, what, 30 minutes ago, 45 minutes ago, that have all of the, the victims, um, they, their remains have been removed now from the nightclub and they're still trying to identify them? Yes, law enforcement says they have uh, removed all of the bodies from the nightclub. They say most of them have been identified. It's just that about half of them, their families have not been notified. Catherine, uh, this is Colin. Um, I'm wondering if you can tell us anything about uh, Florida's firearms license law. Obviously, there are some uh, things about this case that are a little bit unusual. He'd been investigated and cleared uh, by the FBI for possible terrorist links. We now know also from his uh, his ex-wife that, that he was repeatedly violent, although I guess there's no actual criminal record uh, of that, that that anybody could act on. But uh, just in general, once you have a Florida firearms license, uh, as he did, I'm assuming it's a relatively difficult thing to take away from somebody. Yeah, yeah, and that's what I understand as well. And, you know, Florida is um, has a, a Republican legislature, a Republican governor, and had really in the last legislative session been fighting for legislation, that, or in the last legislative session, uh, been fighting for legislation to allow guns to be carried openly on campuses and open carry. So this is um, a state that's, that's pushing for more um, carry laws around the states in places where before they have been banned. Um, we're, getting, we're working now to get in touch with some lawmakers to find out what, how that discussion will be shaped in the coming months and in the next legislative session. Catherine, I wanted to ask, um, how has the uh, police and first responders, how have they been able to get information out to families and friends um, who are still wondering where their loved ones may be? So they started by gathering them at the hospital where most of the victims were taken to. At that point, there was such an overwhelming flood of people because uh, we're talking 49 victims and the shooter that makes the 50 dead and then another 53 people injured. So they moved them to a nearby hotel that has been the staging area. 
and uh, methodically and slowly, police say, they have been uh, giving family members some of the worst news of their lives. Your news director at WMFE in Orlando, Catherine Welch, uh, this is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. You know, so often when these kinds of events happen, uh, there's criticism of how the media covers uh, these kinds of events. Um, how are you and your team uh, telling the story um, from Orlando? So uh, one reporter, so there's um, a, a camp where all the media is, a, po- um, a lectern where law enforcement, FBI, Orlando police, Orange County sheriffs, the mayor, the governor, U.S. senators uh, are all coming to brief the media. We have a reporter there getting us the updates. We have a team here at the station, and uh, we have a dedicated health reporter. He's now looking at uh, what's being done, you know, what was done at the hospital, what still needs to be done, how does a trauma center work, things like that. He was also out at the blood banks um, the other the other day. Uh, we also have another reporter um, dedicated to what we call in public radio the heart and humanity, the stories, the stories of the victims, the stories of those who are mourning the loss. Uh, this is summer, and I actually have a quarter of my newsroom out on summer vacation mm-hmm. So um, we are working that way. We're also getting an enormous amount of support from NPR and from member stations across the country and across the state, working closely with our sister station in Miami, who's covering the the, um, Fort Pierce angle. Fort Pierce is directly between Orlando and Miami. It's on the coast, and it's where the shooter was living. So a lot of collaboration, uh, a lot of hours, and a lot of hard work. I'm speaking with Catherine Welch, again, news director at WMFE in Orlando, Florida. Um, Catherine, when you began uh, talking with us, you mentioned the blood banks in the community. Um, you know, this this shooting happened at a gay nightclub, and we're hearing that because of old rules, uh, members in the, the gay community are, aren't able to give blood at a time when it's um, necessary to help the 53 that are injured. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so this goes back to HIV-AIDS, and there was a lot of confusion on social media yesterday afternoon into the evening. It's been cleared up now, but uh, gay men are banned from donating blood. It was unclear whether that ban was lifted or not. It has not been lifted. Um, So what we're seeing are members of the gay community showing their support elsewhere The LGBT Center has a crisis hotline set up. There are people volunteering, answering the phone. A lot of people volunteering. The blood banks, they needed juice and fruit to help, you know, the people who were giving blood. Um, More um, donation centers started opening up and volunteers really working to bring water and supplies and things like that there. Also, efforts were being made to make sure victims and witnesses were receiving counseling, City of Orlando, Um, certainly leading that charge. So uh, a lot of people coming together. This is a very tight-knit LGBT community here in Orlando. They are certainly pulling together and feeling the love from other communities across the nation and really around the world.
Catherine, this is such a hard story to cover, and there's so many threads to it, and I find that uh, you get interested in one thing or are concerned about one thing, and then so many other things come up, and, and you forget the first thing. So at some point yesterday, uh, there was talk of the waiving uh, of federal HIPAA requirements, and, and I never quite understood what was going on there. Obviously, family members want to know uh, about the safety or, or the health condition or, or even just the status, alive or dead, of their loved ones. Was there was any part of this due to any kind of confusion about who was who's a spouse? and who's not? I mean, obviously, uh, some of this has been decided at the Supreme Court level almost exactly a year ago. But was any of that, to your knowledge, due to the fact that there were people there who were husbands and wives but, but not recognized that way by hospitals? You know, it's unclear right now. Our Congressman Alan Grayson uh, was definitely sort of pushing that at a press conference early yesterday afternoon. That really didn't get traction. We're certainly looking into that now. So Florida in January of 2015 legalized same-sex marriage, and as you mentioned almost a year ago, the Supreme Court. So uh, definitely this will be new to the medical community, and we're certainly following that thread. I want to thank Catherine Welch, News Director at WMFE in Orlando, Florida, for joining us. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. This is where we live. What's your reaction to another mass shooting in the U.S.? Are you a member of the LGBT community? How do you view this tragedy? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Comment on our website, WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. When we come back, U.S. Senator Chris Murphy joins us. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. WNPR's Colin McEnroe joins me in studio as we reflect on the massacre in Orlando, Florida on Sunday. Fifty are dead, including the gunman. Another 53 injured, all shot inside a gay nightclub. It's another mass shooting in America. How does it make you feel? Have you been a victim of gun violence? How do you talk about this tragedy with family and friends? 860-275-7266. Again, 860-275-7266. You can leave a comment on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. Find us on Facebook or Twitter at where we live. It's safe to say Connecticut knows how the Orlando community is feeling this morning. It's been four years since 20 children and six educators were shot dead at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown. Connecticut's U.S. Senator Chris Murphy is now in studio with us. He's been paying attention to each mass shooting since Newtown. Thank you for joining us today. Yeah, happy to be here. What's your reaction? Well, we know the pain that they're going through, and we know that this is just the start, that the ripples of this grief, when you're talking about dozens of people, uh, being killed are never ending, and Orlando is going to need a, a lot of help, and we'll be there for them. Um, every shooting is unique; the facts are all unique, uh, and so I think it, it behooves all of us to step back just a bit and make sure that we have all of the information necessary here before we, you know, go out and be too specific in our policy prescriptions. But it suffice it to say, you know, there is no other country in the world in which this happens with such regularity. There is something very unique about the United States in which we have come to accept uh, this epidemic level of mass atrocity. And we've come to accept, you know, virtual silence from the United States Congress. And my hope is that we can return and have you know, some reasonable conversation about how we make our community safer. You've re- you've been pretty harsh in how you phrased it, though. You've yeah. said Congress has become complicit in these murders by its total unconscionable deafening silence. So how do you make that change in Congress if it hasn't happened yet? 
Yeah. I mean, so you know, everybody asks if Congress didn't do something in the wake of 20 first graders being killed, why would anything else change their disposition? Yeah, my rhetoric is harsh because I think that history suggests time and time again that silence does equal complicity. And I think that there are individuals who have become unhinged from their faculties that are contemplating mass murder. And when they don't hear any policy condemnation coming from the United States Congress, when Congress does nothing in the wake of mass shooting after mass shooting, uh, they take that as implicit but unintentional endorsement. Uh, And so um, I know that there's no one policy panacea. But I do think that we are sending a very dangerous message when we don't do anything to try to change this uh, reality. And so my words are harsh, and I think it is ridiculous that we are going to come back to the United States Senate this week and we are going to debate the budget for the Department of Commerce, right? That's important, but we should be sitting down and talking about some ways that we can find common ground to make this less likely. We should be coming together to condemn the ways in which certain political leaders are going to try to use this incident to further divide us. The rhetoric here is just as important as the actual policy, um, but we're not going to do that. We're going to just go back to business as usual and from a congressional standpoint, pretend that this didn't happen. A a ban on assault weapons, is that something that you see in the next few years? I mean, again, we're looking at a mass shooting where this alleged gunman had an AR-15 style rifle. Yeah. No, I don't see that happening in the near future. I mean, it's pretty clear that Republicans in Congress are not going to entertain any serious restrictions on military-style assault weapons. But, you know, let's be honest about what these would-be terrorists are doing today. The last few were not um, concocting bombs in their basements or garages. They were going and buying very powerful military-style weapons that are capable of killing lots and lots of people in a short period of time and opening fire in crowded places. And so I think we have to recognize that for would-be terrorists, their weapon of choice today is an assault weapon. And um, no, I don't think that there's going to be a serious conversation about uh, banning them. Uh, but I think you have to ask yourself um, if this guy didn't have access to that weapon legally A, would he have carried out the crime? I do think there is an element of courage that comes with walking into a crowded place with a weapon of that power. And B, if he had walked in, would as many people have been killed? Um, I don't know the answer to either of those questions, but we're not going to even try to endeavor to find the answer uh, when we get back to Congress this week. Senator Omar Mateen has sort of two different kinds of profiles. One of them is whatever involvement he had with uh, radical Islamic causes. He did he was cleared by the FBI in one investigation about that. But his other profile, at least based on testimony from his ex-wife, is that of a domestic abuser. And obviously, uh, these kinds of weapons in the hands of, of uh, committers of domestic violence are incredibly dangerous. We have the Lautenberg Amendment. What we didn't have with Omar Mateen, apparently, was any kind of legal record of him being an abuser. Had there been one, had he been identified as even a misdemeanant, would the Lautenberg Amendment have kicked in? Would it have worked, at least given how it's set up to work, uh, would it have worked to keep weapons out of his hands? Yeah, you know, it it depends on the the crime that was committed. There's an effort right now to move more violent misdemeanors into the category of those that would prohibit you from purchasing uh, a weapon. But there, as we know, there are intersections with the legal system relative to domestic violence that today allow you to continue uh, to purchase weapons. If you have a temporary restraining order, for instance, um, so long as that is temporary, you can still go purchase a, a weapon. And so, listen, 
I, I think that we are better off if we have a broader basket of violent crimes that uh, that land you on the list of those that are prohibited from purchasing a weapon, so long as we have a means for you to get off that list. Um, I think the default position should be that if you've committed a violent crime, if you have, if, if there is evidence to suggest you are a threat to your loved ones or your community, that you shouldn't be able to buy a weapon. And then you can uh, grieve that process to try to get that right back. The other problem here, obviously, is that there are so many of these weapons now in circulation. I mean, so many of the AR-15 type in circulation that we don't even know within a million how many there are. Somewhere between 2.5 and 3.7 million. That's one of the spreads I've seen, which is kind of crazy to not know even within a million units how many of them are in private possession. So that's toothpaste that's going to be very hard to get back into the tube. Even when you make laws about this, the laws often don't contemplate going in and confiscating. I mean, isn't that one of the bridges? that's going to be very difficult, if not almost impossible, to cross in this country? Yeah, I I think that's right. Now, if you make... Um, the sale of assault weapons illegal, as it was prior to the expiration of the law, that will apply both to sales at stores, but also to secondary sales. And so you will have all of these weapons in private hands. I don't think that we are likely going to make that illegal if we reapply the law, but they won't be able to transfer those weapons. Um, so I don't think it's coincidence that this sort of epidemic level of mass atrocity has broadly correlated with the expiration of the assault weapons law um, in about half of these um, these very high-level mass shootings, it has been one of these weapons that's been used. And even if there are a lot of them out there, they couldn't be transferred to people like Omar Mateen who are purchasing the weapons, it seems to be, um, at the immediate moment that they're contemplating these crimes. I want to go to the phones now. Uh, Karen is calling from Mystic. Go ahead, Karen. You're on Where We Live. Yeah, hi. Um, we talk about horrors such as what happened in Orlando in terms of how we can protect ourselves from the individual perpetrators. And I guess I'm wondering uh, from your guests how you think the American public can best protect themselves from the NRA that has long and hard uh, advocated for the wanton uh, and largely unchecked sale of the weapons used in, in, in mass murder. All right, Karen, thank you for your comment. Uh, Senator Murphy? Well, I think it is remarkable that the NRA has opposed um, a, a provision that you know, 95 percent of my constituents support, which is taking individuals who are on the terror watch list and moving them onto those that are prohibited from purchasing weapons. Now, the NRA says, yeah, there's some people on that list who shouldn't be there. And that's and that's true. But the default position should be that if you're on that list, you can't purchase a weapon. And then if you're not on there um, for the right reasons, you should be able to take yourself off it and then get that right return to you. So it doesn't make any sense that individuals on that list can't get on a plane and fly, but they can walk into a store and buy 20 guns and hundreds of rounds of ammunition. Um, But listen, I just think it's important to step back here and recognize that this isn't just about gun policy, right? This This is also about a terrorist group that is seeking to weaponize individuals who are living on the fringes of our society, who are susceptible to radicalization. Um, And as important as it's going to be to talk about gun policy, it's also going to be important to push back on those like Donald Trump who want to use rhetoric following this tragedy that they think will harden 
uh, our national security, but in fact will compromise it because it will push more of these individuals into the fringes, make them more susceptible to radicalization because they hear messaging telling them that they are not part of mainstream America. Uh, and, and that clearly is an element to the success of ISIS in trying to recruit members or lone wolf attackers into their ranks. Can we talk further about this terror watch list? Because I've read, and I know that the Senate, um, there was a bill under Senator Feinstein, I believe, about um, putting people that are on this watch list that they prohibit them from buying guns. But I also read there's 700,000 names on this watch list. So how can that um, tool be remedied so that you're not you know, just willy-nilly putting anyone on there and their rights are being taken away. So uh, there's no doubt that that watch list can be, uh, can be refined. But I, I think as a starting premise, if you have found your way onto that list, uh, that we should suggest if you can't get on a plane, you also shouldn't be able to buy a gun. And th- there should be a process by which you can take yourself off that list. A lot of times y- you may share the same name with someone who has had connections to terrorist organizations, and so your name finds itself by accident uh, on that list. Um, but let's be honest, there are mistakes made in the existing background check system today. So right now, if you've committed a crime, uh, you are prohibited from buying a gun. There are people who are wrong fully convicted. There are people whose names find themselves onto those lists because they share a similar name with someone that was convicted of a crime or spent time in jail. So there are mistakes on the existing system. That doesn't mean that we get rid of it. That means that we try to correct the flaws. And I think we should apply the same premise to the terrorist watch list. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. U.S. Senator Chris Murphy and WNPR's Colin McEnroe are in studio with me as we reflect on the massacre in Orlando, Florida that happened early Sunday morning. I want to take a call from a Connecticut resident. David McGuire, you're on Where We Live. Hi, Lucy. Um, I understand that you're actually in Orlando, Florida with your family on vacation. Right. We've been vacationing at Disney World this past week and have definitely seen a change in the environment since the shooting. Can you talk us through what you're seeing? Well, we were actually on our way to the park yesterday morning when we checked our news on our smartphones and found out what had happened. Um, And once we arrived at the park, it was clear that security was um, much heightened. Um, I had to go through a metal detector, which previously was a random metal metal detector screening, but they were putting almost everyone through it. Um, And there happened to be a gay couple in front of us in security that were were obviously concerned and asking questions about the increased security. And they did say... Um, security folks said that they were going to take extra precautions just to make sure that uh, there's not any copycats in the Orlando area. And I believe you also sent our producer a picture from Walt Disney World. There was a vigil there? Right. So when we were leaving last night, that, that was our final night there. Um, they, they were putting the flag in Main Street of Magic Kingdom at half mass, um, and people were, were visibly upset, and people were taking pictures like my wife did. So um, clearly touched a lot of people, and, and she's shaken. Um, even that kind of fun environment at Disney World. just wanted to ask you quickly, David, um, you're there with your young children. You know, we've heard from listeners on Facebook where whenever something like this happens, um, they're unsure like how to talk about this with family, um, with children. Is this something that you're, you're shielding your children from? Yeah, I mean, I'm, we're lucky in that our children are young, one and four, um, but we will eventually have to have that conversation with them, and I, it's only a, a matter of when, not if. Um, but we've been fortunate not had to address that with her yet. 
And I wanted to mention that David McGuire is also um, with ACLU Connecticut. Um, and you were going to be on the show today for another topic, but um, because of what happened in Orlando, we wanted to reach out to you. So thank you so much for your call, David, and safe travels back home. Happy to learn this perspective. Thank you, Lucy. And I want to take another call now. Uh, this is uh, Derek from Windsor. Derek, you're on Where We Live. Yeah, thank you for taking my call. First, let me just say Chris Murphy for vice president. <laughs> but um, I, I want to say it's sad that we're having this conversation in America, supposedly the greatest country in the world. And I learned long ago that to every problem, there is a root cause. And until you get rid of that root, it's like a tree. You'll never be able to get rid of the problem. And the problem is money, money from the gun lobby. And I don't think it's sad to say that we're going to be seeing much more of this in my mind. I hope I am wrong. But I think the president has a lot of good plans out there, background check, you know, and things like that. The plans are there. What is not happening, you don't have people that are willing to execute these plans. So we're just having these conversations, and we're going to be having more. Trust me on that, Lucy, because until you execute the plans, the plans are there cut and dry. We're going to be having a lot more of these conversations. Thank you. Thank you, Derek, for your call. So, Senator Murphy, again, we're hearing from a resident who says this is um, much of the same, and there, he doubts that there will be change. Um, what can you tell your constituents? Well, and I think this relates to the prior question about what can average citizens do. I mean, the reality is, is that um, well, 90 percent of Americans support something like background checks and the majority of Americans, maybe not the same number, support uh, restriction on the purchase of military style weaponry. Um, you know, Americans are not elevating that issue uh, on their list of priorities when they go to vote. And, and you know, President Obama has you know encouraged people to um, make that a voting issue. So that's certainly something that uh, that people can do. We've got to find a way to build some consensus on these issues. When you have, is there very, there are very few issues like this where, on background checks and this terror watch list issue, you have ninety percent of the American public in one place, and you can't get a consensus in Congress. You know, one of the only ways that that gets fixed ultimately uh, is at the is at the ballot box. Again, I, I don't. I think it's a mistake to have this conversation just be about gun policy. I think this shooting suggests that this problem is much bigger and much broader, and, and, and we've, got to, we've got to broaden out the conversation besides just a question of assault weapons. But it is a very relevant part of the discussion. Speaking of which, we got a tweet from a listener who said, we need to be our own first responders. Be prepared. Gun-free zones are a problem, not a solution. Well, what we know is that the data very clearly tells us one thing and one thing only, which is that in communities that have more guns, they have more gun violence. In communities that have looser gun laws that allow for a concealed to carry, uh, they have more gun crimes. And so there is absolutely nothing that the evidence suggests in the evidence that suggests that more guns in a society, more guns in schools or nightclubs or churches leads to less gun violence. I don't know whether this is confirmed, but there are reports that there was um, an off-duty officer in the club who uh, was armed uh, and um, I, who knows what happened, but that apparently did not immediately stop this shooting. And again, the evidence suggests that that is not actually a prescription to reduce this level of carnage. 
Senator, as you say, I mean, we don't know uh, in, anything close to everything about this situation or everything close, anything close to everything about Omar Mateen. Um, early reports kind of suggest that he's more of a lone wolf than part of a network. You, you may know more about this by now, but it doesn't, doesn't really look like he fits into the, the, the ISIS-directed profile. He's more the ISIS-inspired profile. Uh, ISIS kind of has its own version of if you see something, say something. It's if you think you should commit an act of terrorism uh, on your homeland, go ahead and do it. Don't even come to us for training or help. Um, in a situation like that, where you have a guy who, to use a word you used earlier, is probably kind of unhinged in a general way, and then is just plugging into this sort of open source uh, I- set of ideas about about domestic terrorism. I mean, it seems to me like a very a, a problem without an obvious solution. I don't know how you identify and begin to, uh, in a proactive way, deal with people like that. Well, but there's got to be something in your surroundings that plugs into your brain when you hear that message that allows it to make sense, right? So you are being told by ISIS that you are the other, that there is a war that exists between Christianity and Muslims between the East and the West. And so I I don't think that ultimately that that can lead to a, a mass atrocity unless you look around and there is something that reinforces that notion that you've been given. So that's why, you know, I I want this conversation to be about pushing back on this rhetoric that suggests that the solution is to target Muslim neighborhoods or keep Muslims out, because that that, that ends up in that message from ISIS making much more sense to people who are unhinged, who are maybe susceptible to hear it. So that may not be a, a piece of legislation or a law, but it's a reminder to all of us how we combat this, which is frankly by doubling down down on inclusive communities. I mean, it just seems one thing about this guy, about Omar Mateen, obviously it was, he's homophobic, right? I mean, he's right. picked a particular uh, target. We know from other things that have been said about him. His father, I think, thinks he was radicalized by he and his son seeing men kissing. This isn't really a huge part of the ISIS agenda. I mean, ISIS hates everybody, uh, but in terms of the rhetoric that they spew out, uh, homosexuality isn't all that high on the menu. So clearly there are other things ra- radicalizing this guy or at least making him incredibly violent that don't track or map precisely onto ISIS. And, and, and we, don't, we don't know what his storyline with ISIS is. It may be that this was simply a, a, an ad hoc justification, an add-on for a crime that he had decided to commit for other reasons. But, you know, ISIS certainly is an attractive organization if you want to hate anybody and want to commit an act of violence against anybody who's a member of an identified minority group. Um, and again, uh, you know, we need to be taking steps to prevent that radical But once it occurs, we also need to take steps to reduce the likelihood that you can then go get your hands on a very powerful weapon and commit an act of violence like this. There are a multitude of prophylactic steps that we can take that we have not. And I would argue that with some of the rhetoric we've seen in the last 48 hours, we are arguably exacerbating. I want to take a call. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Some listeners are calling in. Uh, Jeff from Coventry, you're on where we live. Hi, I just wanted to make the comment that I really think the only way we're going to turn this whole um, cool gun culture thing around is by making it not cool. There's too many movies, TV shows, video games where the answer lines right up with what the NRA is saying, and the way uh, gun crimes are resolved are by good guys with guns. And unless we change that around and say the good guys don't have to have guns, you can be cool and not have a gun, it's never going to change. That's my opinion, so I'll take my answer off the air. Thanks. 
Thank you, Jeff from Coventry. Um, Senator Murphy, you said it earlier that this is not just a, a conversation about gun violence. Well, we, listen, we have a we have a celebratory culture of guns in this country. It is something beyond just the Second Amendment right. It, it is also a, a celebration of firearms that pervades every medium. Uh, the fact that the Motion Picture Association is creating ratings for movies in which they allow for, you know, mass violence and epic levels of gun violence to uh, make it into our movie theaters, but treat the sexual content in a very different way tells you what we value and, and what we don't. So I think that's a tougher issue to crack from a public policy level. But, you know, it's a reality. If you look at somebody like Adam Lanza, you know, there's a lot of different storylines that play into how he ended up um, killing 26 people. It is a story of mental illness. It's a story of his connection to this culture of, of violence. It's a story of his access to powerful, powerful weapons. And the concoction is, um, you know, essentially denies us the ability to tell a really simple storyline. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. I want to take one more call before we get to break. Joe, you're on Where We Live. Hi, thanks for taking the call. Listen, Senator, I believe Senator Murphy is, is correct that this is a larger issue that speaks to the culture of violence in our society, from our media to our uh, local paramilitary law enforcement and, you know, the, the, the rise in gun deaths. There's, but there's a disconnect between conservatives, violence, guns, and liberty, particularly when 26 school children can be slaughtered and nothing has changed. What hope do we have? Well, I, listen, I think we have hope because the American you know, people, the broad electorate, um, you know, understands that things have to change. We have this very peculiar circumstance right now in Washington in which, you know, the endorsement from the gun lobby means something much more than your positioning on guns. It's become, you know, kind of a stamp of approval that you're a true conservative. And so we've got to, you know, we've got to figure out that issue uh, as we move forward because I don't know that democracy really allows for the Congress to say this far out of step with the uh, b- broad cross-section of the American public for too, too long. So I remain an optimist about this, again, while acknowledging that in this incident, um, it's not just a question of gun laws. It is also a question about a terrorist organization that is losing ground in Syria and Iraq today. One of the main arguments for the expansion of their influence is being lost to them, the inevitable expansion based on the geography of the caliphate. Thus, they are more reliant now than ever on trying to inspire these lone wolf attacks. We've got to talk about that as a portion of this debate. I want to thank U.S. Senator Chris Murphy for joining us in studio. We understand you have another event at 10. You're going to be on later on public radio. We appreciate your time today. Thanks. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. This is Where We Live. When we come back, we're going to hear more from Connecticut residents who were at a vigil last night in Hartford. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. There is more love like you need it somewhere. There is more love. That was music from a vigil held yesterday on the north steps of the Connecticut State Capitol building. The gathering took place to honor the victims of Sunday's mass shooting in Orlando, Florida. 
49 victims and dozens were injured. Sunday's shooting massacre is being called an act of terror and an act of hate. Here's President Obama just hours after the massacre. The shooter targeted a nightclub where people came together to be with friends, to dance and to sing and to live. The place where they were attacked is more than a nightclub. It is a place of solidarity and empowerment where people have come together to raise awareness, to speak their minds, and to advocate for their civil rights. So this is a sobering reminder that attacks on any American, regardless of race, ethnicity, religion, or sexual orientation, is an attack on all of us and on the fundamental values of equality and dignity that define us as a country. We're going to hear more from the LGBT community about uh, their reaction to Sunday morning's massacre in Orlando. But joining us now by phone is an organizer of that vigil in Hartford last night. Dr. Saud Anwar um, is a South Windsor Town Council member and Connecticut's first Muslim mayor, also founder of the American Muslim Peace Initiative. Dr. Anwar, welcome back to where we live. Thank you, Lucy. Thank you for having me. So first off, your reaction to the news when you heard it. Uh, it was uh, heartbreaking. Um, you get um, hurt at so many levels, first about uh, the loss of innocent lives, and then the next pain is the fact that uh, um, our LGBT community, which has been attacked and bullied in, in so many ways, is uh, yet again a victim of uh, one of the worst hate crimes that we have seen in our lifetimes. And, and then, of course, uh, the other pain was that this person claimed to be a Muslim, which also hurts you uh, being a Muslim. Uh, Dr. Anwar, uh, w, uh, Where We Live senior producer Lydia Brown here at WNPR spoke with some of the people who attended the vigil you organized in Hartford last night. Uh, she wanted to find out what brought them out on that chilly Sunday evening. Here's what they had to say. Uh, well, with what happened in Orlando today, I really wanted to be able to be with community um, and bring my daughter as well. It was really important to me. Um, she and I always talk about the importance of kindness and not hate and not being mean. And so we came up with this sign that says, choose love, not hate. You know, the solidarity of, of seeing, you know, it doesn't matter, you know, how you identify, whether that's religion or sexuality or gender. Um, when things like this happen, it's about being together and it's about offering support to people. For me, this is personal. What happened in, in Orlando, Florida today or earlier this morning is personal. You know, I, I have a stepson who, who's from the LGBT community. I have a niece, a goddaughter. I work with young people um, who are from the LGBT community, so it's very, very personal. So it made me very sad, angry, and I wanted to come here just to say that I'm present to, to support the LGBT community. We have to see each other. We have to see each other hurting. We have to see each other in, in hopefulness and in prayerfulness and, and know that together we're stronger. I think that's probably the biggest reason to be in a place like this is to feel the strength that comes from everybody who's here. Those are voices gathered by Where We Live senior producer Lydia Brown at a vigil last night uh, for the victims of the mass shooting in Orlando, Florida. Dr. Anwar, um, you know, we hear so often when these events happen that, you know, people, what they want to do is they want to come together in solidarity. But meanwhile, um, there's a lot of rhetoric out there that divides this country. I mean, uh, somebody who um, has been in, or is in politics now, I mean, um, what are some ways that uh, communities should respond to this? I think uh, this is also a time where people have to be responsible. We have to look at the broader picture, and I'll, I'll be somewhat blunt. 
when when uh, politicians like Trump use this tragedy to further their political agenda and and, and use uh, hate speech and then use hate speech against the Muslims and other minorities, uh, that actually is is a gift to ISIS. It, it legitimizes ISIS, but it also helps their. Uh, um, opportunity to recruit people, and and we have to be a responsible community, responsible leadership within within the faith communities, but also within the political communities, to stand up against hatred because that actually is the precursor to what we saw in 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 Orlando yesterday. Uh, this is Colin McEnroe here. It, it does seem as though once again you're put in an unfair position. Obviously, in Norway, the Christian community didn't have to explain that Anders Breivik was not some kind of expression uh, of of Christian belief. Uh, same thing with the Charleston uh, shooter here in the U.S. But it does seem as though uh, Muslim leaders, every time something like this happens, have to explain this. But uh, so, I first of all, I apologize for asking you any question about this. But maybe you can just say a little bit about since they're obviously homosexuality was part of this crime or the LGBT community was part of this crime um, it, what in general would the average American, Muslim American think or know about LGBT rights and attitudes? So, so uh, the challenge we have uh, Colin, thank you for your kind comments about uh, the, the challenges the Muslims have to face every time there is a, a criminal activity or a terrorist activity uh, done under the uh, by an individual claiming to be a Muslim. The, the challenge in this crime is that first we have to recognize that it is a hate crime. We have to recognize the hate crime, and even terrorist activity is a broader generalized hate crime uh, at, at an organized level. But um, the hate that we see in some segments of uh, the so-called religious right uh, is unfortunately a reality when it comes to LGBT community, and I think that's where the community members from within those faiths have to stand up. And, and when they hear something, they have to say something, because um, hate is uh, uh, the, 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 the mother of, of violence in, in, in so many ways. And I think that's something uh, we need to stand together. And I think another thing that we have to recognize is uh, that there are people outside of our country, ISIS, and, and who are trying to recruit people, too, in, in, in some respects. So indirectly, they're trying to influence people. Indirectly, they're trying to... Uh, identify the vulnerable in our society to try and, and further their um, nefarious agendas. I wanted to bring in the conversation. Uh, we're mentioning the LGBT community. Sean Lang joins us by phone. She's director of public policy with AIDS Connecticut. Sean, welcome to where we live. Thanks, Lucy. It's great to be here. Tell me how the LGBT community is reacting uh, to what happened in Orlando during Pride Month. You know, I think we're horrified. And I, and I just want to say, too, that you know, not only occurred during Pride Month, but during the month of Ramadan. So bringing together Muslims and the LGBT community and other allies is critically important last night. Um, but to wake up on Sunday morning and turn on the news and hear that this is something that happened um, was just horrific. I mean, gay bars uh, historically have been our safe places. And, you know, I saw somebody post today, if you don't understand the kind of safety that these um, places offer us, then you've never tried to hold hands with your partner out in public. Um, I think that really brought it home for me. Especially in a state like Florida, I mean, in Connecticut, there people um, tend to respect others and, and uh, confirm that each one of us has uh, rights. And that may not be something uh, when we look at other parts of the country where people can feel free to be themselves in public, as you mentioned. Yeah, obviously. I mean, Connecticut's been very progressive on these issues, being the third state in the nation to pass a gay rights bill. Um, and that 
you know, I think has forwarded the conversation here. We have openly gay public and elected officials, um, and we have, uh, a, you know, just a breadth of allies that come forward to support us in all types of things. Um, so to live in a state like Connecticut and hear, like, things like this go on in a state like Florida where people are allowed to carry these assault weapons is just horrific, and it needs to change. Sean, it's Colin. Uh, so about a year ago, obviously, the, the White House was bathed in rainbow colors after the Supreme Court decision, and so were so many people's Facebook profiles. But there's been a year of pushback, uh, and uh, it's shown up, uh, obviously, in places like North Carolina. And uh, And I don't know, and you don't know, how to fit this particular act into the culture of that foot, uh, pushback. But I'm just wondering, uh, you know, as you, as you continue with this month, whether it makes sense to ask for a little bit more security at gay pride demonstrations. There was that confusing report out of Los Angeles yesterday. I think it's sort of less clear now uh, what that guy was up to with the weapons and explosives in his car. But uh, obviously you don't want to transform your culture of hard, hard-won hard freedom into one of paranoia. But on the other hand, I don't know how, how comfortable are people going to be showing up in public for pride demonstrations and celebrations o- over the next few weeks. I think it's probably going to vary from state to state. Again, I think in Connecticut, you know, there's obviously probably going to be a heightened sense of safety and perhaps a need for a little more security, heightened security. Um, but I don't think I think that we have to be really, really careful, too, not to succumb to this fear and not to succumb to this rhetoric. Um, you know, I've been sort of um, equally horrified listening to news reports and hearing mostly Republican uh, politicians keep focusing on ISIS and not focusing on the fact that this was a hate crime against the LGBT community, uh, plain and simple. Um, But I think we have to keep moving forward um, in a way that, you know, we don't shrink back from where we are now. We don't roll back where we are now in terms of equality, um, and we keep moving forward. And I think last night's um, vigil on the steps of the Capitol was just a shining example of the way that Connecticut responds to something like this. We got a tweet from a listener who says language that we use determines how we react. Shouldn't call the alleged gunman a lone wolf when they are simply a murderer. We're almost out of time. I do want to thank uh, Sean Lang, Director of Public Policy with AIDS Connecticut. Thank you so much for calling in today. Thanks for having me on the show, Lucy. Also, Dr. Saud Anwar, founder of the American Muslim Peace Initiative. Thank you so much, Dr. Anwar. Thank you for having me. Uh, Before we go, I wanted to thank WNPR's Colin McEnroe for joining me this hour, and you're going to continue the conversation this afternoon. Yeah, we'll have more, uh, more coverage of this. And, uh, you know, I think we'll extend some of the conversation that we've had here today. I think people also really need to talk on the phones. That's right. And we've heard a lot of, of we've gotten a lot of tweets and calls that we haven't had, did not get a chance to go to. You can continue this conversation on our website, WMPR.org slash where we live. Again, Colin, thank you for joining me uh, to talk about a hard subject today. Thanks our for show, having me, Lucy. Thank you. Our show is produced by Lydia Brown and Tucker Ives. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. WMPR's digital editor is Heather Brandon, and the executive producer is Katie Talarski. Again, you can go to our Facebook page or our Twitter, at Where We Live. Uh, Tell us uh, how you're feeling today, uh, one day after a massacre again in Orlando, Florida. Uh, 49 dead, uh, including the gunman that would make 50, another 53 injured. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. This is Where We Live.